The scripture is in your bulletin today. It's uh, 1 Timothy 6 for our short homily sermon today. 1 Timothy 6, 11 through 16. I will read as we begin. Paul is speaking to Timothy. But as for you, child of God, shun all of this. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and for which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the presence of God, who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. I charge you to keep the commandment without spot or blame until the manifestation of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will bring about at the right time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. It is he alone who has immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Did anyone see the eclipse of the moon a few nights ago? Wow. We were wondering why it was called the beaver moon, and we found out that early Native Americans kept time, of course, by observing the seasons and the phases of the moon, and they called the November moon, especially the Algonquin tribe, they called it the beaver moon because November was when beavers were particularly active in preparation for their winter hibernation. But aren't eclipses astounding and a curious phenomenon? Think about how God did that. Having the ability to see with our naked eyes as the moon passes through the earth's shadow? Lunar eclipses were a way that the ancient Greeks figured out that the earth was round. Did you know that? The earth blocking the light of the sun, which then illuminates the moon, is also what gives the moon a reddish hue because a little bit of the light bends around and uh, gets through. So though technically it wasn't a total lunar eclipse, this one is about as close as we're going to get. NASA said at its peak, 97% of, of the moon was covered in a process that took 3 hours, 28 minutes, and 24 seconds to be exact at its peak. This is the longest lunar eclipse since 1441. Wow, 580 years ago. And some of the pictures are simply stunning. And I encourage you to watch them because it's so much different than what we can see. So as we celebrate Christ the King Sunday, a day to proclaim that Jesus is at the center of all human history, that he is the God of all creation, that he is the hope of the world, we might think about what a king in full glory looks like. When monarchs of every time and culture put on their elaborate royal regalia, it is a spectacle so that everyone recognizes their power and their majesty. They wear accessories that display their worth like elaborate coronation robes or mantles, scepters and emblems and symbols and colors and priceless jewels and swords or crowns, whatever headpieces, anything that their culture deems important to show the grandeur of their ruler. How does God show his glory? 
through a beautiful lunar eclipse. It seems very appropriate to me then that we celebrate Christ, our true sovereign, this week when we have seen the splendor of the king in the heavens for the whole world to see and that we recognize the majesty of our God who reigns forever above all thrones and rulers. Amen. In 1 Timothy, Paul is warning a young pastor about the dangers of false teachings. Much like we have been seeing in 1 John, those who were perpetuating myths and falsehoods were wreaking havoc with the people of God. Now, the church in every age has had to deal with this. We talked about that. The church, until Jesus comes again, is going to have to deal with this. We are seeing it today. How the church is looking a lot like the divided world around them, fighting about conspiracies and controversies, which is most detrimental when there is a lack of love. And it's interesting that Paul doesn't clearly articulate what the issues are. His emphasis instead are how these rifts are negatively affecting the church. Because when God's people focus on fleeting arguments that divide them, instead of spending their energy on making disciples, sitting down and seeking truth together, serving others, then the message and work of the gospel suffers. And that's what Paul is saying to the church. He's trying to bring correction to the reality that they were facing. This chapter in particular is about godliness. And we might think of godliness as the characteristic that naturally comes when people believe that God possesses all wisdom and want to be like him, when we follow the teachings of Jesus closely, when our hearts are inhabited by the power of the Holy Spirit. The surrounding verses that we have just read are also about wealth. Paul is telling Timothy that those who want to be rich fall into the kind of temptation that will plunge them into ruin and destruction. Why? Because the love of money is the root of all evil. The love of money, not money. The love of money is the root of all evil. And he laments, Paul is lamenting that people have wandered away from the faith because they're following something that sparkles. Paul says, there is great gain in godliness combined with contentment. What does contentment look like in your life? Godliness combined with contentment is great gain. We obtain so much more when we seek God first and are content, happy, joyous with what he gives us instead of striving with what we don't have, instead of focusing in on what we crave and what we think we cannot attain. That's why our beginning words from Paul here are an exhortation to shun. Turn away, Paul says, from the temptation to compare your life to those around you. When we, whenever we think that people around us have life easier or better, when we envy what they have, we are led away from God with the human ideals of how life should go, then we're in danger. Paul says what we all know to be true, but sometimes we might think of trite or we get tired of hearing. Paul says, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, 
love, endurance, gentleness. This is what Jesus's kingdom looks like. Notice the verbs that Paul uses beside shun. That is a verb. He also says fight. Fight the good fight of faith. We have to fight in our lives to keep godliness uppermost in our hearts. And then he says, take hold. Take hold of the eternal life that you have been given. You are called to eternal life, Paul says. You were made for eternal life. One day, everything that we think of as so important here, all the pettiness we fought over, all the things we worried about, all the treasures we held dear are going to be gone. We are made for eternity. And everything we do is meant to get us ready for that promise. But that doesn't come easy for us, does it? If you have felt the struggle of doubt, if you have felt the pulls of the world, if you have wondered if anything matters at all or why you are here, if you have mourned the painful realities that we face and been outraged at how people are treated, if you have suffered, if you've waited for God to make things better, then you understand what Paul is talking about here. In order to keep the faith, we have to grapple and wrestle and struggle. Sometimes we have to have knockdown showdowns with ourselves and with the Lord. But Paul says, this is a good fight. This is a fight worth fighting. So many fights we have, they're not worth it. Have you do you ever remember time saying, well, yeah, you know, my sister, my husband, my whoever, we were fighting about that. I don't even remember what we were fighting about. People. You know why? Because it didn't really matter in the end. What matters is the person standing in front of you. What matters is the good fight that Paul says that we should be fighting. Because in it, we take hold of what is eternal and we don't let go. We persevere, we hold on like Jacob wrestling with God. Here we see Pilate mentioned. Nikki read that for us earlier. The Roman governor who ultimately paves the way for Jesus to be killed. The account of the Lord before Pilate is mentioned in all four gospels. It's an important story. It was an important story for the early Christians who professed Jesus as Lord, who lived under the same oppression. And Pilate, who wants to release Jesus, asks, are you indeed the king? Are you the king of the Jews? Kind of like, answer me. Now, this is dangerous territory, of course, because Caesar is the only ruler in Rome. He is to be worshipped. So people brought Jesus to this place, hoping that Pilate will recognize the subversive danger that Jesus truly represents. In all four narratives, Jesus says the same thing to Pilate. He says, thou sayest, or you are saying it. Listen again to it from John. Therefore, Pilate said to him, so you're a king? Jesus answered, you say correctly, I am a king. For this purpose, I have been born. And for this, I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens, listens to my voice. 
This is what Paul calls a good confession. It is answering a secular question with an answer from a sacred perspective. That's what we have been emphasizing today. Jesus is the blessed and only sovereign, the king above all kings, the Lord above all gods. And this is what his people, we the church, declare to be true. Not just in the confines of our gathered community, but also where we work and live and play and struggle. Israel wanted a king so that they could be like those around them. Although warned, they ignored how an earthly ruler might take so much from them, might do actual harm to them. We serve a risen king whose commandments are meant to help us focus on what is really important, not just temporarily expedient. Jesus lived out his identity as one sent from God and then commands us to do the same. Jesus modeled an intimate trust in God and tells us to take time away with him also. Jesus gave up material comforts to bring compassionate help and healing to those who were suffering, urging us to care for the least among us wherever we are. Jesus invited people to follow him, leaving us with the imperative that we are to intentionally make disciples and that we are to go and do the same. Jesus taught lessons from the earth so that we would see his creation as our teacher. Jesus, whose closeness with God helped him see clearly what is true and false. Jesus is the ruler who comes from the throne to suffer injustice as one of us. So we come before him as his loyal subjects in celebration and also for wisdom in time of need. Today we celebrate the king who sacrificed his life so that we wouldn't have to languish in sin and death. I pray the words that we have sung and heard today match our everyday reality of who Jesus is as we proclaim the glory of Jesus as our king of kings. May we allow Jesus to fully reign in our hearts and lives and church. May we commit to seeking his truth above all else. And may we commit anew to what Paul reminds us, to profess Jesus as Lord until the day he comes again. Amen. Let us pray. Thank you for listening. If you would like to learn more about the Free Methodist Church of Santa Barbara, you can visit us online at fmcsb.org. We pray this message has been a blessing to you.